This podcast contains explicit language. If you want to know how explicit, keep listening. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, and this is Hang Up and Listen for the week of September 11th, 2023. On this week's show, we'll talk about 19-year-old Coco Goff's big breakthrough at the U.S. Open. We'll also discuss Texas's win over Alabama, whether the Longhorns are back, baby. And finally, The Washington Post's Ben Golliver will join us to assess Team USA's non-medal winning performance at the FIBA Basketball World Cup and what it means for the Olympics and the international game. I'm in Washington, D.C., and I'm the author of The Queen and the host of the podcast One Year. Our new season, One Year 1955, is out now. New episodes coming out each Thursday. Please subscribe. Also in D.C., Stefan Fatsis, he's the author of the book's Word Freak, A Few Seconds of Panic and Wild and Outside. Hello, Stefan. Hello, Josh. And with us from California, it's Joel Anderson. He is the host of Slow Burn, Becoming Justice Thomas. And we're all looking forward to your thoughts on your favorite college football program. Right now, my favorite college uh, program is Colorado. I'm a (laughs) Deion Sanders fan. I've been converted. Um, I'm a believer, as we established last week. So Last week, you hedged on whether you were a believer. (laughs) Now you're confirming that you are a believer? You know, I mean, did we not? Do you not remember my tweets from November twenty twenty one when I lobbied TCU? Actually, I, you know what? I want to go ahead and say this. Somebody reached out to me over the weekend, and they like, "Hey, I remember how hard you were stumping for Dion, um, and I'll never forget it." And they said, "They they I'll never know forget somebody." <laughs> yeah, right. Well, because they, they're gonna say they know somebody who knows somebody, and they said that. Well, I don't even know if I should say this, but that basically TCU was afraid of having Prime because they didn't want him to outshine the school's brand, which is just, I mean, if that's true, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. We get what we deserve, casting our lot with Sonny Dykes. But I'm not bitter. It's over. I'm a Colorado fan. In our bonus first Slate Plus members this week, uh, the extremely non-bitter Joel Anderson and the never-bitter Stefan Fatsis will discuss uh, the moments from the opening weekend of the NFL season that stood out to them. Maybe we'll get into the Commanders' first post-Dan Snyder game or the Cowboys thrashing of the Giants. Tune in to find out. Uh, to be a Slate Plus member, you need to sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. And if you do, you get to add free shows, you get bonus segments, you get to support us. It's a good time. Slate.com slash hangupplus. After a meek first set in the U.S. Open women's final on Saturday, Coco Goff reset her confidence, her strategy, and her shot-making and trounced hard-hitting Arena Sabalenka 2-6-6-3-6-2 to win her first Grand Slam tournament. Escorted by a phalanx of security guards, Goff made a long climb through the stands and met her entourage in an aisle of Arthur Ashe Stadium. Her mom said, you did it! Her dad started crying, Goff was crying, everyone was crying. It was an incredibly genuine and happy-making scene. Elsewhere over the weekend, Novak Djokovic won his 24th major title. Josh, there was some sort of atmospheric disturbance in front of my television after Goff won. Things got a little misty there, too. Why do you think Coco Goff becoming at 19 the youngest American to win a major since Serena Williams 24 years ago, also in New York, resonated so powerfully? Coco is not the first woman to have won a major um, after having been brought into the sport by the Williams sisters and having explicitly stated that that's the case. Sloane Stevens, Naomi Osaka have 
said similar things. But Coco is the first who I think has been explicitly talked about as an heir to the Williams sisters since she was, you know, profiled by ESPN when she was 12. I mean, think about LeBron James, the chosen one. That's when he was in high school and was already, if not fully formed, at least, you know, operate, you know, post puberty operating on a level where you could kind of see where things were going if everything um, went perfectly well. Um, you know, this is somebody who's had the weight of expectations on her since she was 12 in the mainstream has had the weight of expectations on her since she beat Venus at Wimbledon when she was 15. And to kind of wind my way to an answer here, she has handled all of it with such grace and poise is clearly so um, intelligent and thoughtful um, that she's somebody who I think, you know, I don't want to exaggerate, but I, I think you know, and everybody has their haters, as Coco talked about in her ceremony. But I think the whole world, and definitely the whole American sports watching world, has really embraced her. Um, and to see her, somebody who I think clearly deserves good things to happen to them, um, you know, after five years and still being a teenager, kind of get this moment that she's been working for, um, was, I think, really special. And I think we always jump to what's next for her? Is she going to win 20 more? Is And that kind of, you know, thinking has surrounded her for so long that it does not just feel like a breakthrough and like, woo, she finally got one. We can relax. It just like, all right, now we can start like thinking that we're watching, a, you know, Tiger Woods or a Serena or you know, a LeBron. And so I think the weight of expectation is not going to go away, but it feels like, you know, she's been on a long journey and we've been on it with her. And it's just kind of a reward for <laughs> both for her and for everyone who's, you know, wanted this for her. You know, so I've finally gotten to the age where I see myself and the parents of an athlete and not necessarily the athlete themselves. Um, and so watching her uh, after that match take center court, I could just only imagine the pride and love that overflowed from her parents in that moment. Um, it's like not just that she was poised and resilient during the match. It's just that everything that everybody is sort of fawning about her now just comes for comes rushing to the forefront afterwards. Like when she's accepting the trophy, you know, she was funny, good natured, thoughtful, and still like 19 years old to have this incredible grasp of the moment. Like, I just can't, like, when I was 19 years old, I think I would have been so wrapped up in, I did this, oh, this is unbelievable, or whatever. But I'm thinking about the line to Billie Jean King right there on the court when she gets, they talk about the prize money, and she thanked Billie Jean King for her efforts to raise the prize money in women's tennis. And that's the sort of thing that you dream of as a parent. It's like, it, it like goes all the way back to starting with, hey, say thank you for when somebody gives you something or somebody does something nice to you. And like, that is the highest um, best example of like what somebody who is a really good person would do or what you would hope they would do. Like, I'm not going to, you know, I don't, we don't know, I don't know Coco Golf that well. This is really the first weekend that I've been introduced to her in quite this way. But, um, for somebody to in that moment recognize the contributions of the people who preceded them and to know enough to acknowledge them, 
that was really quite beautiful. And and it also just kind of got me in the mind of there's sort of the the as you mentioned, Josh, the obvious, even overt connection to the Williams sister. It's one of those things that make old people say, God, don't make mistakes. Right. Because, I mean, it, and people have talked about the fact that, you know, Serena and Venus went to the same middle school where Coco's maternal grandmother taught and, you know, even um, worked on the same court where they practiced their their game. So, man, it's just, you know, I don't know where it's just going to go from here because, you know, I mean, there was one point in which we thought Naomi Osaka would rule tennis, you know, women's tennis for, for quite a long while and things happen. But um, at a minimum, I'm just really grateful that it seems that she's appreciative of the moment and is really seeming to be soaking it in, especially for somebody that young. Like you just hope that she is able to hold on to that and keep it and seem to keep the joy that she has about the game uh, going forward. To build on what you were talking about, Joel, her story seems like not a gross family parent sports story. These people seem like nice people, like decent people who managed their daughter's talent in a reasonable way. Now, I will say that Coco Goff was created. I mean, her dad, when she was six, started researching great players and their trajectories. Um, he created a 10-year plan for her when she was like eight years old. Um, she was homeschooled from a very young age. You don't become a U.S. Open champion typically these days without that kind of structure and that kind of determination. Um, but it does seem that despite that sort of parental decision-making at a very young age that our daughter seems to have some athletic talent, let's go all in and try to make her into a champion, that these are reasonable people. I mean, I go back to something that I said in the intro that her mom said, you did it. She didn't say we did it. And I think a lot of sports prodigies get defined as the sum of their parts. The parents did it. Someone else did it. A coach did it. And Coco Goff, though, is incredibly gracious, right? She acknowledged everybody. Um, and it does seem like everything that the people around her say is that this is a woman who is balanced, who has intelligence and fortitude, and as one of her new coaches, whom her dad and she brought in a few months ago said, she can handle anything. And that's what I think makes fans so attracted to her and so optimistic that she will continue to play at this level for a long time. In the final against Sabalenka, who's one of the most powerful hitters in the sport, um, there are just some incredible moments of um, retrieving, of moving by Coco, who's often the aggressor herself, but in this case was in a lot of ways outgunned and was able to win because, um, you know, I, I think a lot of people have noted that Sabalenka made a lot of errors. Well, the same thing happens when, um, you know, you play against Djokovic or, or Alcaraz. If you realize you have to hit a line to get it past somebody, you start missing the lines. And so I think Coco does deserve a little more credit than she's gotten for those errors by Sabalenka. But it was just cool to see those kind of standout points in the match where she's running side to side, doing things that, you know, no other player in the women's game can do um, to kind of show those. That That's something that she's had for a long time. What has happened 
this summer, you know, she'd never won a tournament above the kind of bottom tier of the WTA tour before, but she has made her forehand a little bit more solid. I think the coaching has helped. She's also talked about um, playing with more joy, and it's often hard to tell whether that's a kind of ex post facto explanation. When you win, you say it's because you've been playing with more. I don't I don't know if what the causation or not is there. But there just has been, you know, ever since, you know, Washington um, this, this summer. Her first win. Just a feeling that everything in her game is getting just a little bit better, a little bit more solid, a little bit more belief that in these tough moments that she can hang with the better players. And it just seems like for somebody who should have had so much confidence in herself and did clearly have so much confidence in herself, there are levels to this, right, Joel? Like, you know, you uh, know you're the best junior, you know you're the best your age, you know you can hang with anyone. But, you know, maybe when you're in the NBA finals or when you're in the French Open final, there's just kind of seed of doubt is there about, um, you know, whether the weak part of your game, her forehand and in her case, is going to flare up, whether it's going to hold up. And, you know, she just went on a trajectory. She had to lose a final before she won this one. But I, I think that's why I was talking about in, in my first answer. It just seems like a classic story where, you know, now that she's gotten there and done it, it just really seems like there's nothing stopping her. Right. Like maybe the floodgates have opened. And I didn't I didn't really get started watching until the second set. And I, I was sort of curious, uh, you know, what you all thought her chances were when she's chasing. Because, you know, I'm, you know, Sabalenka is going to be ranked number one in the world this week. And Coco has has not been here before. But I, I'm, I'm watching the match and it's just... You know how it is. It's, you're watching when a great athlete is having, for lack of a better term, a meltdown. And that's sort of what I noticed. I was just like, even someone as accomplished and great as Sabalenka, they have these moments. And it's like where the favorite is reeling under the weight of the moment in their own mistakes. And I don't want to make it seem like she's doing it to herself because Coco Goff is doing this to her as well. But the and the crowd that was universally rooting for her opponent, too. And that seemed to bother Sabalinka. You, t- I mean, she made remarks about the crowd like several times in the wake of the match. And I don't, you know, whatever the reasons why she thought the crowd would be for her in an American setting, uh, in New York, but against, a, against an American. But it certainly seemed that that also unnerved her a little bit too. It kind of felt like watching Coco come back was like watching a football team commit a turnover and immediately give up a long bomb. Like that's like, I'm, I'm looking at Sabalinka's like, oh shit, like it's, it's really in her head. And then you could see Coco gaining in confidence as the crowd got behind her. And I, and on Twitter, I saw people talking about her game face and I could just see her like silently mouthing words to herself every time Sabalinka served. And I was like, man, she's, she's really locked in. And it almost feels like kind of cliche, like in a movie moment where it's like, oh, she's got confidence in herself now. The champion's bleeding and she's going to seize. And so I just, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't have any other way to sort of contextualize what Coco was going to do. It just looked like she was going to win. But Stefan, did you think that as it was happening, did you think, oh, she, it's, it's finally all come together for her now? Or did you think, ah, nah? Well, the first set, I was kind of deflated. I mean, the first set was really yeah. difficult to watch. Sabalenka was just making her run from side to side. And for all of the times that Coco got to balls, um, she was making mistakes and there was nothing she could, you know, there was, there was some shot she could not return. It looked like Sabalenka was in total control. Um, and part of that reversal, Joel, is I think what 
is, is a reflection of her growth. I mean, the other thing about Coco Goff that is incredibly endearing and reflects this maturity is her willingness to talk about her self-doubt, self-doubt that all athletes have, right? Um, but her willingness to sort of say that, you know, when I was 15, I thought I should win every tournament and then I didn't. And it got to me and it creates doubt before, during and after matches. Um, and the difference here is that she lost in the first round at Wimbledon. Um, and that would seem to be a moment where an athlete could really lose it um, and doubt herself for all of the expectation, making it to the French Open final last year. Um, America wanting her to be the successor to Serena, who retired last year. And then, and then going out in the first round. But clearly, she went deeper, new coaches, new attitude, really growth psychologically, it seems. Um, and she talked about all of that. And I think that's another reason why we love her um, and why people are so, so convinced that she's an athlete that you can root for without any qualms, without any hesitation. She lost in Wimbledon in the first round to Sophia Kennan, who won a Grand Slam in American and had fallen from the top of the sport due to injury, mostly. But it's a testament both to the fact that whether it's Cannon or Bianca Andreescu, who won the right. U.S. Open when she was a teenager and hasn't won another one since, to Naomi And Emma Raducanu said, said, stated, I wish I hadn't won the U.S. Open when I won it at 18 out of nowhere. And, you know, you can look at those those names and results in a couple of different ways. I think we should understand, and I think more in women's tennis than in men's tennis, the level of talent just across the entire world that the sport attracts. It's not just girls in America who are lured in by the William sister story or their parents. It's, you know, girls in Serbia and girls in China. And it's a sport that for women, I think, is probably the most competitive, the hardest to um, achieve success in and the hardest to achieve enduring success. And so anybody who makes it to the top like 500, much less winning the US Open, it's like you're climbing you know, above so many other people who have the exact same dream that you do. And so um, you, you know, that's one way to look at it. The other way is there is no Serena Williams. Like Iga Svantec is number one. She's great. She's not Serena. There's no Steffi Graf. There's no Martina Navratilova or Chris Evert right now. It's probably the most competitive. It's the hardest moment in history to win a match, but it's maybe not the hardest to win a major. And so it feels like that's the tension here. It feels like impossible for Coco or anyone else to achieve what any of those other players achieved. And yet it still kind of feels like there's an opening. And the great players, it doesn't matter what era you play in. Like Novak Djokovic has... 24 slams, um, tied Margaret Court for the most all-time in an era where he had to come up against Federer and Nadal and now Alcaraz. And he is one of the greatest athletes in any sport of all time. I mean, he had the Kobe Bryant t-shirt, which was kind of in Novak style a little bit much. Um, but I think he was more like Michael Jordan. I mean, like this is a guy who makes every major final and just wins to a and and comes up in the clutch like he did in the tiebreaker against Medvedev on, on Sunday um to agree to a degree 
that just seems like fictional, like implausible, like nobody could could possibly do this. And so it is po- it is possible. We've seen it this weekend that athletes like this can emerge even in the most competitive era in sports. And so that's why I'm saying that the pressure and expectation because Coco is so marketable, she is so young, she is so smart, she is so talented, everyone is going to be wanting that for her. Um, And so it's going to be fascinating to see what her arc turns out to be. But she's just achieved with this one major win, and even before that, just a remarkable level of success already. I mean, yeah, you're right about Djokovic, Josh. And and like Jordan, Djokovic is also willing to be a dick. um, And he's willing to taunt his opponents and lord his superiority over them. I mean, he decided to mock 20-year-old Ben Shelton, who miraculously 20-year-old, the minor Ben Shelton, who's not even able to drink alcohol. He mocked (laughs) mocked him him. mercilessly. Well, he made fun of his his celebratory gesture. and like, why? You're a 36-year-old dude with 23 Grand Slams, and you beat like a, a young and up-and-coming, delightful young player who's great for the game. Like, why be a dick in that moment? Why not just be gracious because and generous? Maybe if you, I mean, what Michael Jordan would say is if you, if you, yeah, like and let j- that stuff slide and don't take those things personally, then maybe he would have won four instead of 23. I mean, it's like. So you're saying Ben Shelton should like take it personally and go out. Everybody should take, everybody should take everything personally. That's what I think. (laughs) (laughs) Were you surprised that the crowd was behind Djokovic at all? I mean, because I just, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of surprised that we're already there, that he's basking in cheers and adulation again so soon. I found it, I mean, I think, was it overstated that the crowd was super supportive of him, Josh? Or were they just being respectful and acknowledging his greatness? I mean, he was a villain for years at the U.S. Open. I mean, he's been a villain. If not a villain, he's been, like, barely tolerated everywhere. And it's just, it's it's matchup dependent. If he was playing Alcaraz or when he was playing any of the Americans, nobody is rooting for him. Like Medvedev, I think, as a Russian... And as somebody who's had his own kind of tempestuous relationship with the crowd, um, I, I think that was one of the few kind of head-to-head personality <laughs> face-offs that Djokovic could at least, you know, achieve a parody in a in a final. <laughs> um, but yeah, if you I mean if he's playing, you know, obviously Federer, Nadal, or even now Alcaraz, like there's just no contest ever. It's probably worth buttoning this up here by saying that this tournament was, uh, I mean, a reflection of the diversity in the game. The fan base was like, the celebrity fan base was crazy. NBA stars left and right. Kevin Durant, Trey Young, Jimmy Butler, um, Donovan Mitchell was there. Um, Rappers, the Obamas. I mean, this was like um, a coming out moment for the U.S. Open in a way. I mean, it's always attracted celebrities, but this felt like it was really cool to be at the tennis center if you're a rich young josh levine and josh levine was there trey young josh i want to go next year i want i want somebody to 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 take me i want to i want to be there we'll go let's do oh oh one quick thing hang up and listen listeners i i need somebody to to answer this question for me in the during the match next to coco golf's parents there was an actor sitting next to them who's known as leon and I'm trying to think. Black people probably know him from the Five Heartbeats, where he was uh, JT uh, in that movie. White people probably know him from the Like a Prayer Madonna video. 
uh, from 1989, which was very controversial at the time. Uh, but he was just sitting there next to her mom. And I want somebody to find out, like, why he was there or what, you know, I, I, I feel like he's close to them. One time I saw him in person, he was carrying a tennis racket at the baggage claim of SFO. So if somebody <laughs> can please explain what the connection is there, I will be eternally grateful to you. And there's some people on Twitter that would like to know the answer to that as well. So please help. Up next, Joel Anderson celebrates Texas's win over Alabama. Don't do that. <laughs> On Saturday night in Tuscaloosa, the University of Texas had its annual opportunity to prove its haters right, to show that all the preseason hype about how this time, really, no, seriously, this time, the Longhorns were back. You know, that's just a bunch of Bevo manure. But then the game started, and Texas was calling good plays and had freshmen who were showing out. And Nick Saban's Alabama looked not just mortal, but at least on offense, kind of bad. It was a strange evening, and at the end of it, the scoreboard read Texas 34, Alabama 24. Joel, I know this must have been especially confusing for you because a belief in Texas's eternal football badness is one of your core values as a human. Hmm. How are you making sense of this weekend's events? Well, that Texas is 2-0 and that this is a 12-game season. (laughs) (laughs) Taking it a game at a time. Yeah, and we'll see. Uh, They have the Big 12 gauntlet ahead of them. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I would love for the Longhorns to embrace these expectations because I know that they've done so well in the past when people are looking for them to excel and be the league champions and the dominant force in the Big 12 is everybody has been waiting. We've only been waiting on Texas to be the dominant force in the Big 12 for a decade, really. So, um, yeah, like maybe they will deliver. But I actually believe that this is the worst team of the Saban era since his first one in, in 2007. Then that team lost at home to Louisiana Monroe, right? So we know that Texas is at least as good as that 2007 Louisiana Monroe team. Like, that's their floor at this point. That's what I'm saying. We know they've at least got that. So I don't think Saturday has to be predictive of anything other than the long-awaited and inevitable decline of the Crimson Tide. Um, Alabama doesn't appear to have any first-round talent on offense. They've got Dallas Turner on defense, and I don't know what you think of Kool-Aid McKinstry, but I felt like he was chasing A.D. Mitchell uh, from behind all day uh, on Saturday. And yeah, this is the biggest win for Texas since at least Colt McCoy was there. And it's a great sign for them in the SEC. They look good. They look credible. Like, And maybe they're getting into the SEC at the right point. You know, the Nick Saban uh, era, you know, seems to be a little wobbly. Um, Florida's not any good. Texas A.M.M. will clearly never be good. Uh, and maybe, you know, the, the LSU, they haven't seemed to lived up to expectations uh, so far this year. Though, like I said, it's two-game season so far. So we, there's a lot There's a lot to look forward to. That was masterful, Joel. You at once put down Texas, which just moved up to number three in the rankings. Yeah, that's great. Flip, they're clearly the third best team in the country. And flip the that's conversation to being about Alabama, not about mm-hmm. Texas. Masterful work. Really impressive. I mean, I just can't. I just can't wait to see them. I just can't wait to see them the rest of the season be the number, the third best team in the country. We can we can really tell 
that they're great by them beating an Alabama team that has absolutely no offensive talent and can't and can't protect their quarterback who can't throw. So yeah, I'm 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 excited to see everybody make them a national championship contender now. The thing that I find really um interesting about this game is that it's like a portal into the portal, right? You mentioned A.D. Mitchell. This is a guy who's a starting receiver for Georgia in the national championship game (laughs) and now just shows up at Texas and is scoring touchdowns, you know, in what will soon be an SEC game, but on the road in Alabama. Um, And, you know, Colorado wins again. They obviously um, are the portal team to end all portal teams. Um, and then you look at Alabama, which, you know, gets Jameer Gibbs from Georgia Tech as a running back who's then becomes a first round pick. They're like, you know, Nick Saban is not in any way averse to using the portal. Um, but Stefan, it just seems deeply strange to me that in like this moment in history with a program that has been adaptable over the years, they're they're not doing the same thing now that they did when they were winning national championships in like 2009. Like this is a team that started out um, with, you know, the kind of Greg McElroy type quarterback. And then if you look at the NFL on on Sunday, you have Tua, Jalen Hurts, uh, Mac Jones, and I think uh, Bryce Young. Like you have four Alabama <laughs> quarterbacks, the last four starting in NFL games. And you look at this game on Saturday and Joel alluded to it. I mean, Jalen Milrow is like a talented player, but is like not a good quarterback at this moment and his development. And how does Alabama like end up with this quarterback in this game in this moment in history? Yeah, I, I was surprised that he was as bad as he was. You know what I mean? Like I thought, like okay, clearly they've coached him up. He's going to be a little bit better. But I, you know, this is like some rudimentary 2004 level quarterbacking that we saw at Alabama, and I just didn't think that they were at a point where they were going to have somebody under center that played like that anymore. How much of this, I mean, look, I can't tell you who transferred where and and who came out of the portal and how Saban's recruiting. I mean, Alabama got the second best or third best Notre Dame quarterback out of the portal, who's now a backup. And like Sam Hartman went from Wake Forest to Notre Dame and is like tearing it up right now. No. So Okay. So I don't know. Is that a function of coaching? Is that a function of how good the player is who transfers? Does it have something to do with Saban's ability to build a roster and compete in an era where his skill at walking into a living room and getting everybody to sign with Alabama, which was so um, apparent over the last, you know, the the previous decade and a half, or have those waned? I mean, is is it just this? Is this just a natural fluctuation and shift in the tides of college recruiting and the change in the way player movement is shaping rosters. I don't know the answer to that. I mean, you guys are going to be way more observant of the individual players and schemes that teams are running, but it does feel like there's a leveling here and that leveling is explicable. Nobody wins forever in college football, right? Like every great coach it comes to an end at some point. And Nick Saban's, what, 70, 71 years old? Mm-hmm. Um, it's around this time that you start to see the erosion in programs. You saw it with Bobby Bowden. You saw it with Joe Paterno. Um, you saw it with Eddie Robinson. Um, it's you, Frank Beamer, whatever, you know, I, I, not to include Frank Beamer among the greats, but, you know, we're talking about program builders, guys that are the icons of their programs. And it kind of starts to fall apart. Gary Patterson at TCU. Um, it never, it never lasts forever. I think, you know, all this movement, and realignment and NIL 
it's just made the atmosphere for competing in, in, in college football even crazier. And I think it's like the, so it's just not going to be possible for anybody to be Alabama again anytime soon. Like I know that Georgia looks really good, but, and, and maybe they'll, maybe they'll win a third straight championship this year. But I just think that the way, the, the way that the money is coming into the game, the way that people are able to transfer, uh, it, it, the, the movement in college football, that it's just not going to be, Possible, but I do, I do want to say one thing about Texas because I want to be nice for a second. I just no, want to say don't do it. Cut his mic, them. Kevin. Cut his mic, Kevin. <laughs> no, no, like, you can't, You've got a you brand to uphold. Do, do you know when I knew that Texas might be scary? They they Their tight end is a guy named Jatavian Sanders. He had like 150 receiving yards against Alabama on Saturday. And I saw him play in high school against Denton Ryan, and he was a defensive end tight end. And I was like, that dude is a freak. Like, I, you know, I just watch high school, great high school athletes, whatever, right? Um, and when I saw that he was going to Texas, I was like, oh, shit. You know, I was just like, oh, man, like that guy is going there. It was, it was sort of the sign of something. Um, and then I'm looking at Texas's talent. You know, Quinn Ewers seems to be better than I thought. A.D. Mitchell, also known as Mo City Mitch. Uh, which means he's from my hometown, Missouri City, Texas. Uh, Xavier Worthy, like all this talent that Texas has. I was like, oh, they're starting to get those kind of dudes. And so it could be that maybe Texas is really is legit and that Alabama, you know, is outgunned for the moment and maybe they won't be bad. Maybe they'll go 10 and two. Maybe they'll go nine and three and the Texas is legit. But, um, I, I don't want to say that it's all about Alabama because Texas does have some dudes. Uh, the issue is, is always, are they as good as their hype? And, uh, I mean, do you think that they can beat Oklahoma, Kansas State, TCU, Texas Tech, Baylor? Can they do all that and not stumble along the way? Can they be that kind of a dominant program? I mean, if you if you think so, guys, great. Uh, that's just not what their history has been, though. There's no program in America that, uh, except for maybe Texas A&M, that's as well capitalized as Texas is and is so hungry to do whatever it takes to win. And their recruiting has been great. Um, did you know, I was just like Googling to um, remember the names of all these Texas freshmen. We've got Anthony Hill Jr., the linebacker, C.J. Baxter, the running back. The Joel, there is something called the Sean Alexander Freshman of the Year Award, and that before the season started, there's a Sean Alexander Freshman of the Year Award watch list. That is the platonic ideal of a watch list. <laughs> the idea that we're going to, before any of these players have ever even played in college, we're going to potentially like what nominate them for an award. I love it. Anyway, they've got well, four players. Was Sean Alexander a great freshman too? I don't remember. I know he was a very productive college player, but was Sean Alexander some sort of great college freshman? I don't know. We, I guess we can look that up. But I remember uh, they seem to like him in Alabama. But anyway, you know, there's always been this conversation about, you know, the elite programs and the lesser thans and, um, you know, with Texas moving to the SEC, with the Big Ten expanding. I, I think that conversation is... Um, only going to increase and persist. There's no sign of that going anywhere. But like the the genius of Alabama and, and Nick Saban is to do it year after year to have the infrastructure in place to not only get the players, but to put them in a position to succeed and, and do well. And there's a lot of elements that go into that. There's, you know, the coaches getting older. There's also coordinators. And Alabama has had this huge run of um, you know, coordinators leave the program and they now have Tommy Reese from Notre Dame. Maybe he's a bad coordinator. We don't know. It's no guarantee <laughs> that 
even if you have the best recruiting class, even if you have you know great transfers, even if you have a good quarterback, even if you have talented freshmen, that you're gonna be able to put um, a winning team on the on the field, you know, every week, much less every year, much less every decade. Um, and so that that I think you're right, Joel, is um, the question about can Texas, you know, translate this one game into something bigger? And I just know you're going to enjoy watching kind of every misstep and pothole along the way. Oh, my dream is that they go 12 and 0. I'm sure, I mean, uh, I hope they go 12 and 0 and that everybody gets excited about them and that they get to go to the Big 12 championship game and go into the playoffs and everybody can get their hopes up huh. and that we can just see Texas go beat Texas. Did that yeah. happen last year to another team? Well, I can't remember. you know, that team that team ended up finishing uh, 13 and 2. They won one more game after they went 12 and 0, Stefan. So, you know, I mean, if 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 Texas wants to follow in TCU's footsteps, uh, you know, all 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 power to them, but uh, you know, they they've got a lot of talent and I do think that like, you know, the the you know, the problem with this for Steve Sarkeesian is that you're raising everybody's expectations. The problem is that Texas's fans' expectations are always going to be unreasonable. Like, it's never, it's like he's never, he's never going to satiate them. So I'm excited for this new era of Texas football to begin. And, and speaking of expectations, I mean, for a program that really had none coming into the season, like everybody thought, well, I should say everybody, but a lot of people thought that Dion was going to fall flat on his face, that that sort of roster overhaul was not possible um in college football and to and to produce like a cohesive competent well-coached team and that's not what has happened in boulder colorado um on saturday you know you know they hosted nebraska for this big game and it was supposed to be sort of a you know a defining moment for that program you know nobody put it this way did any of you all think the colorado would be two and oh after this saturday uh no, I don't think so. No. I mean, not that I was particularly familiar with their yeah. schedule because it didn't seem like they were worth paying much attention to. I mean, they are playing Oregon and USC back to back coming up, and it's just like such a weird season so far. Like the SEC, um, in just two weeks, like Georgia has looked okay, I guess not great, but um, you know, for the conference that outspends everyone, out recruits everyone is like assimilating the other top teams to create this like Borg. There's a lot of signs of, of weakness in the upper echelons of the conference, whether you're talking about LSU or Tennessee or Florida or um, A&M. So it, it's been, um, that's like one side of it. And the other side, the Pac-12, which I guess still exists technically, like mm, USC. Sort of. USC um, looks great. Colorado looks kind of great. Eight teams uh, in the top 25 this week from the Pac-12. Washington State beats Wisconsin and is like chanting afterwards, like, we belong in the Power Five. It's not at all how I expected the kind of beginning of the season to play out. Right. You know, I mean, Colorado was the first team to leave and sort of set off this, you know, next round of realignment. If we only had the gift of time, like, like let's say there was three more months before the Pac-12 had to, you know, before Oregon and Washington and Colorado and Arizona and Arizona State and Utah had to make these decisions, you wonder if they might revisit this because it's kind of sad. I mean, out here on the West Coast, like we should have our own major 
football conference out here and everything is a victim of time. Like I mentioned, if this had been five years ago, Stanford wouldn't have been begging for a home in a conference somewhere. They were a good foot. They were a national football brand and they were pretty good. And they had played in the Pac-12 championship in consecutive years. But all of a sudden, just because they have a bad run and then they're looking for a home. And so it's just, yeah, it shows how like ridiculous all of this movement is too, because I mean, it only takes a couple of years for these schools to cycle back. And then you're going to, I bet we're going to look up in 2024, 2025, all those Pac-12 schools are going to be great. And they're going to be playing like fucking Rutgers. Uh, they're going to be playing in Maryland and, or, you know, Wake Forest. And we're going to be like, why is this happening? All these schools could be playing against each other on the West Coast, but it's just no longer possible because everybody panicked at the same time. Or it'll get reversed in three to four to five years and you'll be some semblance of geographic normalcy again. It'll be like the AFC West or something like that. Yeah. Be, call it, yeah, right. Yeah. Up next, Washington Post Ben Golliver on the FIBA Basketball World Cup, where the U.S. finished fourth. In the FIBA World Cup final early Sunday morning, Dennis Schroeder scored 28 points to lead plucky underdog Germany to its first ever gold medal and an 83-77 win over Serbia. That's right. I said Germany and Serbia and Dennis Schroeder. So for at least one year, Schroeder and the Germans can lay claim to being the best national team in the world. And that's because the U.S. men came undone down the stretch of the tournament losing their players to illness and injury, and then losing enough games to leave the World Cup without a medal for the second straight time. Canada outlasted the Americans 127-118 to 118 in the bronze medal game Sunday, riding an avalanche of hot shooting from Shea Gilgis-Alexander and future Houston Rockets championship piece Dylan Brooks. It was an especially dispiriting close for the Americans, who lost three of their last four, but who actually improved on their seventh-place finish in 2019. Today on the show, we have our friend Ben Golliver, who is the national NBA writer for the Washington Post and who covered the FIBA World Cup for the Post. Thanks for coming on with us again, Ben. Oh, it's my pleasure. Wish it was under uh, more patriotic and happy circumstances. <laughs> Before we dive into the trouble with the Americans, let's start with the gold medalists, uh, Germany, and their exhibition against the U.S. last month. It seemed like there were signs that they could actually pull this off. There were some signs that they were going to give the United States a, you know, a real challenge. They were up 16 in the second half of that exhibition. But what was so interesting about this team is they completely choked down the stretch of that exhibition. They gave up a 22-5 to five run to the USA, and everyone thought, oh, you know, the American talent's just going to overwhelm this German team, which had four NBA players, uh, Dennis Schroeder, uh, Mo Wagner, Franz Wagner, uh, and Daniel Tice. So, you know, pretty good players, but, you know, not all-star caliber players. Isaac Banga erasure. <laughs> yeah. So uh, that continued to be a problem for Germany. They actually went undefeated through the entire tournament, but, uh, tournament, but in the quarterfinals, they nearly choked against Latvia in similar fashion. So the big question was, can Germany hold up in the big moments? And it was Schroeder who came through uh, for them, not only against the United States, who just couldn't keep him out of the paint. I mean, he's so quick and, and uh, you know, smart and savvy getting to the hoop. But again, against Serbia... 
in, in Sunday's final where he had 28 points. He had five points in the final minute to close things out. And he had been so erratic in the quarterfinals. So it was like this beautiful, like Phoenix rising from the ashes type story for Schroeder, where he was uh, the goat in the quarterfinals and he wound up being the hero. Afterwards, he's getting doused with water by his teammates. He's holding up the trophy. Uh, He's saluting Dirk Nowitzki for being sort of the forefather of German basketball because this was their first gold medal ever at the FIBA World Cup. Uh, And he was also reflecting on what had been a 10-year journey for him with the program. He actually played with Dirk Nowitzki back in 2015, if you can believe that. And uh, that's one of the issues the Americans have. We don't have anyone who can really reflect on 10-year runs with uh, USA basketball uh, in these kinds of tournaments. Now, we get some guys coming back for multiple Olympics, but I think Germany's experience uh, and their continuity uh, built up over Eurobaskets and World Cups and and other international tournaments really helped push them over the line in this one. Let's not dismiss the quality of that German team. I know four NBA players, not great NBA players, but there's a difference, Ben, in international play versus NBA play. I mean, Dennis Schroeder's had a great NBA career. He averaged like 13 points for the Lakers last year. He's only 29. It's not like he's on the back, back, back end of his career. But the difference in play is what I think casual fans don't appreciate. Um, And the structure of the U.S.'s roster has been criticized for not appreciating the exigencies of FIBA and international basketball. And these teams from Germany and Latvia and Lithuania and Serbia that play with each other so much over such a long period of time because the player pool is so much smaller and everybody is willing to sign up for every tournament almost. Um, This is when the disparities um, become apparent when the U.S. doesn't send a team of all-stars the way it's likely to at the Olympics next year, which we'll talk about in a minute, right? Yeah, I hope I didn't come off dismissive. I mean, Germany's talent was rock solid. It was great team chemistry. They were hardly the only major challenge for the United States who also lost to Lithuania that had some NBA players, but also, again, a bunch of frontline size that posed real matchup problems for the United States. Uh, and Canada had a deep well of NBA talent, but also a great culture. Uh, you know, two-way uh, co- contributors like Dylan Brooks and Shea Gilgis-Alexander really forming a team that was a, a tough matchup for the United States in the bronze medal game. Uh Serbia as well. And you can really look at the depth of international talent right now by who didn't make the quarterfinals. Spain, France, and Australia. Those are three of the the prestige programs coming out of the last Olympics where uh, France gets silver, Australia gets bronze. Spain has been, uh, you know, winning basketball tournaments for years. They they took Eurobasket last summer and none of them even made it to the knockout round in this tournament. So um, not only has the world caught up, not only is it a different game that the Americans have to adjust to, but we are seeing Uh, seeing some real infrastructure uh, developing in the second and third generations of these programs as they get further and further from that, you know, infamous 1992 uh, dream team exposure where everybody caught the basketball fever because of Michael Jordan and Larry Bird and Magic Johnson. Let me just say there's actually two problems, you know, adjusting for the, the USA basketball for these tournaments. One is the rules and, you know, you only get five fouls and, uh, you know, they, they have different timeout rules and the referees kind of conduct things differently. And Steve Kerr was really preaching about 
those kinds of adjustments to his players when he brought them together for training camp in Las Vegas. That was like a real focus for him because he thought during the 2019 FIBA World Cup that they had left stuff on the table by not being familiar enough with the actual rules. But the other adjustment for these guys is they have to learn how to win. And when we're bringing such a young and inexperienced team, you go right down the list of the players who were uh, on this roster for USA Basketball. They have very short NBA playoff track records. Uh, A few of them had won a title at at Villanova. And so I think that's probably part of the reason why they brought in guys like Josh Hart, because they wanted a little bit of that winning spirit. Uh, But, you know, the young standouts, whether it's Anthony Edwards, uh, Jaron Jackson Jr., and a number of the other players in that mix have just not had that experience of pulling out close, tough games with stakes. And it really came through. Anytime they were tested in this tournament, they kind of folded. They didn't respond in the right way. And you also saw the inexperience come through with their Achilles heel, which was starting slow on almost every important game. They'd get themselves into these double-digit holes in the first quarter almost every single time. And they didn't bring the appropriate uh, respect for their opponent and intensity right out of the gate. And these are short basketball games. It's really hard to dig out of... uh, 10 point holes, uh, you know, time after time after time. And I think that was one of the adjustments USA Basketball has got to kind of figure out going forward. They either need to bring a more experienced roster or they need to keep some of these younger guys together for longer so they can have a chance to develop some cohesiveness uh, when they go into these uh, future international tournaments. They did um, jump out to a big lead against Italy in the knockout round. So we're just going to be hanging on to that. Like that's the, you know, really jumping out to a lead against Italy. We can hang our hat on that as a basketball <laughs> nation. Yeah. Our one win in the last eight days, <laughs> just just for clarification, and uh, Italy was totally overmatched and actually whining. They were whining afterwards that they drew the Americans in the quarterfinals because if the Americans had beaten the Lithuanians in the group stage, Italy would have had an easier draw. And they clearly they were psyched out. It was actually kind of funny to watch. There's one country still afraid of USA basketball, and that one, that's Italy. <laughs> There's nothing that we like more as a basketball nation than not watching these tournaments and then making grand pronouncements about the state of American basketball after they're completed. Um, But it seems to me, Ben, like there's never been a worse time to use the basketball, I guess it's the World Cup now, formerly the World Championships, to use it as any kind of measuring stick of anything. Like we mentioned, you know, obviously, you know, you look up and like, oh, like LeBron and Steph and even like a Jason Tatum, like a younger player. None of them are there. But like, you know, Serbia's in the gold medal game. I guess Jokic must have had a great tournament. Oh, he's not there either. Um, you know, Australia didn't have all their best guys. Jamal Murray wasn't there for Canada. Giannis didn't play. Hello. Greece would have been right there. You know, Joel Embiid didn't play for any of the three countries he's eligible for to <laughs> test Ben's thesis about whether he would be able to tank an international team as well as a, an NBA one. And Victor we- Victor Webanyana didn't play either. All of that. So there's a scheduling issue here that this is just one year before the Olympics. Everybody's kind of, you know, holding their their fire for the Olympics. You know, it's obviously like light years away from the Soccer World Cup, even internationally, in terms of how seriously everyone takes it. So I I guess before we move on to, um, you know, the U.S., the Olympics, the program and all all that, just like, what is the point of this tournament? Like, it seemed like people in the Philippines liked it, I I guess. Um, You know, Carmelo Anthony was on the sidelines as a you know, FIBA ambassador. He seemed like he was having a decent time. But like, what what is the the purpose of, of this event? 
Well, look, there's a lot of challenges with this event. Number one, they moved it to one year before the Olympics. To me, that was a strategic mistake because now you're asking the top players potentially to commit two summers in a row. And when they're coming off of 82 game regular seasons and long postseason runs, that's way too much to ask. And that's why a lot of these big name uh, players are sitting out. Um, I think another issue they've had is in terms of the host countries. And this is an American centric issue. But the last couple of times they've, they've hosted this thing, it's been in Turkey, it's been in China. It's been this year was kind of in three different countries in Asia and the next one's going to be in Qatar. So when you're looking at trying to get an American audience to tune in and get excited about this tournament and and believe that it really matters. Well, you know, it was tough. I mean, I was pulling my hair out, waking up at five o'clock Pacific time to watch some of these games. And some of the other ones were at 1 a.m. or 2 a.m. Pacific where, you know, you're just they're not going to have a lot of eyeballs here. I think what FIBA is trying to do, number one, they're trying to grow the game globally. And I think they've had some success. There. there was some phenomenal crowds, actually, in all three countries where this tournament was hosted. And when they brought it to the Philippines, the crowds down the stretch for the knockout tournament were excellent in the building. It just came through on television. You could tell that people were really invested. And FIBA is trying to expand this tournament and get more teams from different continents that maybe haven't had as many representatives in the past, again, to kind of, uh, you know, just further the sport. So, When I take a step back, um, I don't like to say, oh, this tournament's pointless. Oh, it doesn't really matter because the best players aren't there. I want to have a more positive mentality of like, how can we build this tournament up? Because here in America, we do basketball tournaments so well, right? I mean, I remember being in fourth grade, the Beaverton running Beavers. Here we go. Uh, We're going to the AAU tournament. Maybe we're going to qualify for nationals. Probably not, but we're going to talk ourselves into it, right? You get into high school. Was there anything better than your parents giving you the sick note? So you could go watch the state tournament in in Portland and see, you know, how is Jefferson going to match up with the suburb teams and all this kind of stuff. March Madness gets an entire month in our country. The NBA playoffs, I can't really defend the NBA regular season as well anymore because nobody's playing defense and it's just people are trying to get through it with load management and all that. But the playoffs are incredible. I build my entire season around the playoff run. Uh, you know, Every year, they've added the in-season tournament. They, they've added the play-in tournament. We're good at tournaments. We understand tournaments. And here you have this FIBA World Cup, which is the second most inter- important international tournament besides the Olympics. And Josh, you're right. We don't care about it here nearly enough as a country. I don't think American basketball players value it enough. Certainly the intelligentsia of Steve Kerr and, and Grant Hill, they care. They're competitive guys. They've got you know experiences with this tournament going back 30 or 40 years, so it's a priority for them. But I almost feel like the FIBA World Cup needs a massive marketing blitz before the next one to kind of get people excited and to believe that like, hey, there are some stakes here and this matters. And I'm sure I probably sound crazy right now. And that's why it's not going to happen. And we're going to be stuck in the same cycle four years from now. Simple question. though: Why why is this thing scheduled one year? Why did they change it to being one year out of the Olympics instead of being on even years? Yeah, I'm going to have to defer that question to the FIBA executives because a lot of what they do <laughs> makes no sense. It was called the FIBA World Championships for decades. Now they're the third most important World Cup because it's not just the Soccer World Cup. It's the Women's World Cup. They're not even the biggest World Cup mm-hmm. in the Rugby same Rugby World Cup, Cricket World oh, Cup. Oh, great point. Okay, they're like the ninth best World Cup at this point. <laughs> but no, it was a, a serious confusion this summer actually with us internally at the Post. Like we're trying to come up with coverage plans. People would say World Cup. I'm thinking one thing because I'm always thinking basketball. Everybody Everybody else is thinking Women's World Cup in Australia, right? You know, so when you said you want to make a pitch for Americans to care more about this tournament, well, how will the 
What's the pitch to the players, actually? Because I was thinking, like, what is the motivation? You look at a guy like Jaron Jackson Jr., and people are, like, much more dubious about him. It obviously wasn't a good fit for him and his particular skill set or whatever. And you see the, you know, you've seen the comments about the players that, that go over there when they don't do well. And I'm like... It's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for people to call you a loser, Joel. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, it's just like, oh, man, Daniel Tice is wearing your ass out. Like, and, I mean... It, and it, it, and, and, it, and it really does affect the reputation, in addition to the injury risk in and of itself. So what's the case for NBA players, NBA stars to even participate in something like this? Well, look, I, I understand the, the cynical nature of that question. I still have this pure heart towards basketball <laughs> and competition. And I'm saying, look, if you wanted to go play in AAU tournaments in Las Vegas when it's 115 degrees when you're in middle school and you want to go represent Michigan State like Jared Jackson Jr. at the NCAA tournament and, and you're trying to compete for a, a Larry O'Brien trophy in the NBA playoffs – you want an Olympic gold medal, and a lot of these players do want Olympic gold medals and also the stage that the Olympic provides. This is kind of the next best thing. This is the stepping stone towards uh, you know that stage. And if you look at the celebrations that the Germans had on Sunday, that looked like a good time, right? That looked like something everybody would love to have uh, you know kind of a six or seven week commitment pay off with. So I think that's sort of the pitch. You've got to get at people's competitive heart. But I'm not naive enough to know it's that simple. When you actually look at the way the American roster structured people focus on did they have enough big men did they have enough guards or wings they actually structured this roster around basically guys who had just gotten paid so they had the least amount of injury <laughs> risk if you go right down the roster it's like who signed the biggest contracts anthony edwards just signed like 200 million dollar extension boom he's on the roster there, there aren't a lot of players who are willing to commit when there's major dollars at stake and that's a big problem just because you know nba players typically are going to get their big contracts after their fourth nba season that's that's when the you know the fifth season's when it kicks in. That's right in the age range, 23, 24, when you would want a lot of these players to kind of be competing in this tournament. So a couple of examples like Cade Cunningham, he was phenomenal for the Detroit Pistons, former number one pick in the Las Vegas training camp, but he's been injured for most of his first two NBA seasons. He hasn't gotten his next extension. There's no way he can go play for six weeks overseas because what happens if you know something happens? He's going to cost himself two hundred million dollars, not like twenty million dollars, like you know. Know the, uh, there, there's you know nine figures at stake here, so it's a major challenge to get the players to care. I think they've done some smart things in terms of uh, you know balancing not just star power with the practical realities of, of who's compensated, uh, you know, been compensated recently, and also you know getting in some role guys who are going to play hard and, and maybe contribute to winning without necessarily being the biggest names. I think their biggest hit on that front this year was Austin Reeves, who had a nice tournament and, and found ways to help. Uh, but it's a tricky pitch and. And um, they haven't had a ton of success with it. And I think part of what they've tried to do with their management staff is go younger. So they go from Jerry Colangelo, who's the godfather of USA basketball, to Grant Hill, who can kind of more connect with, uh, you know, maybe younger players. They go from Greg Popovich, who had, in my opinion, a really hard time building a culture for that 2019 World Cup team. Guys kept leaving before it was time to go. Uh, they, they didn't want to be a part of the experience. They, they called in with, you know, injuries and whatever else. Uh, to Steve Kerr, who, uh, you know, I, I think struck a lighter tone than maybe like the militaristic Coach K and Greg Popovich before him. So they're trying to make this this fun experience, go abroad, bring your wives, bring your girlfriends, get to see a new part of the world. They're trying to make it kind of a holistic pitch, you know, sell some sneakers overseas, do some events. Um, and uh, clearly it's a good pitch because they're getting good players, but maybe it's not a great pitch because they're not getting great players. 
some of these players probably might have played themselves on to the Olympic team, too, which is another motivation. As you mentioned, they want to play in the Olympics. They want the gold medal. Um, so if you're Austin Reeves, if you're Ant Edwards, probably locked himself a spot on the Olympic team with his performance in this international tournament. The thing about losing, though, it certainly motivates the stars to come out and want to go to the Olympics next time, even the ones that have already done it. Shams Tarania in The Athletic reported on Monday that LeBron James is already calling people around the NBA to get them to commit to going to Paris, and he's willing to go. Uh, the story said that he's talked to Steph Curry, Kevin Durant, Anthony Davis, Jason Tatum, Draymond Green, and they are all prepared to commit as well. Devin Booker, Damian Lillard, De'Aaron Fox, Kyrie Irving, also serious interest to Kyrie Irving. Wow. Yeah, that's where I was going to go. Like, I wonder if Kyrie Irving's going to be the Isaiah Thomas of uh, the 2024 <laughs> yeah, Olympic team. Yeah. Whether This is now a redeemed team, isn't it? Yeah, but I, I think they're not interested in going because this team lost. Like, that's not, that's not what's happening here. I, I think that whole redeem thing has run its course and, 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 and been played out. I think this is a tremendous marketing opportunity, as Ben said. Paris Olympics are not going to have the issue of the FIBA World Cup in the Philippines. Everybody's going to be watching around the world. And, I, and it's Paris. And it's Paris. It's, you know, Wimbanyama. Right. There's going to be a huge amount of interest in basketball in these Olympics. And so I think, you know, we can be cynical, those of us who aren't Ben Golliver, and say it's about marketing. But we can also be Ben Golliver and say... Uh, you know, Lebr it's a legacy play for somebody like LeBron or sure. Steph or, or Katie to win another gold medal. And for those guys, Ben, this would be the last the last dance, right? Well, um, you know, first of all, LeBron James is unbelievable at changing the subject. You might remember he gets swept <laughs> by the Nuggets. He comes out and he says he's going to retire. This USA basketball team kind of goes out with no medal. Everybody's licking their wounds and LeBron comes through right on schedule to change the subject to let everybody know, hey, I'm interested. He's doing the little emojis on uh, Instagram to let people know he wants to get back in. And what do you know? Everyone's going to talk about how great 2024 is going to be instead of how bad 2023 was. So just a master, uh, you know, magician, if you will, kind of. Of a, with, with the deception. And I think there is some genuine interest. I've heard that bubbling up for a couple months now, him, Steph, and KD. It would be great to see them all on the court together. Um, for Kevin Durant, I mean, he'd be going back for, I think, his fourth gold medal, which is just an incredible legacy with USA basketball. And he would really kind of put himself on this tier of like, uh, you know, the greatest American basketball players of all time if they were able to close it out. Also keep in mind, USA has won four straight Olympic gold medals. So all the hand-wringing about the World Cup, uh, they're going to kind of keep this streak going and win number five. And so that's some real stakes too. And I, I think some of the guys who were part of those previous teams and a lot of those stars you mentioned were part of at least one of them. Uh, there's a pride at stake of like, let's go over there and do it and, and make sure we're not the ones who kind of lets that, let, lets that thing slip. I guess my problem here is that we're operating on two separate tracks, right? It's like, the veteran guys, the big stars, everyone wants to see these players. We're already excited about them in Paris are not even considering playing in the World Cup. And the guys who do play now have to completely take a back seat and fight for whatever scraps of roster spots are left over. So when, then they, when they can play on the big team, that's not necessarily a healthy dynamic. And that's definitely yeah. not how it goes in a lot of other countries. Yeah. Right. What I'm saying yeah. is. Look, we the Olympics the, is the model. We want the best <laughs> players. Let's build up the FIBA World Cup, too, and try to get these best players in there and, uh, you know, extend American dominance uh, across both tournaments. Let me, let me ask Joel a question. In the four-by-one relay in the Olympics, you know, in the rounds, who runs the rounds? And then who runs the final? Can you, can you educate us on how that works? 
Yeah, I mean, a lot of the alternates. I mean, I think, you know, whoever finishes like fourth through seventh at the, uh, at, at the national finals in the hundred, they get to run the first rounds. It's not, you don't see Noah Lyles running the prelims, uh, for the four by one, right? So it is, it is sort of customary. Like other athletes get used to the idea that I'm only here. I'm only holding the seat warm for the really great person uh, to show up <laughs> in the final, right? But, not, but I actually hear what you're saying, Ben, because it doesn't, I mean, though, all these guys have like egos and it's like, why would I, why would I commit, you know, again, risk injury, spend the summer away, possibly lose and, and, and then, and, and then not, I maybe not get a chance to compete in the Olympics. Like, I mean, that's a, that's still a tough sell, I would imagine. Well, it's a tough sell because, first of all, the average NBA player who's going to be, uh, you know, competing for one of these spots, even on the JV team, is so much more wealthy, has so much more access to doing whatever the heck that he wants than the random sprinter who's, you know, holding a seat for the uh, the elite sprinters. Um, in part because the NBA is it's a victim of its own success in terms of how much money these guys are making. I think the other comparison people like is soccer because in soccer they care about the World Cup, they don't care about the Olympics, right? And it's kind of the reverse in basketball. And I understand that, but I don't. I just don't understand why it has to be either or and i guess i'm challenging you josh was this good enough usa basketball fourth out of 32 teams in the FIBA world cup they don't medal for the second straight tournament we're getting further and further away from the glory days of kevin durant and stephen curry taking home gold uh, you know in front of hostile crowds in the uh, in the 2010s are you comfortable with this especially when other countries out there aren't saying We've got seat warmers. They're saying, hey, come and be a part of this for an entire generation. Be like Nicolas Batum in France and get to play in five or six, seven, eight, nine tournaments over the course of your career. Um, no part of you is jealous of this, uh, the, the international culture that some of these other countries have created? It's sort of what I come to expect from whatever airs at 4.30 a.m. on ESPN2 in the Eastern Time <laughs> time Zone. That's kind of the quality of the, the programming. Um, and I think FIBA brought it on itself. What the U.S. did was qualify for the, Olymp- the Olympics. The U.S. wasn't qualified for the Olympics. They had to send a team. They couldn't just send, you know, you know, Jeff Van Gundy coaching G League players, which they've done for other tournaments. Like, you have to send a credible team to get... It's only like 12 spots in the Olympic tournament. And so if you put the tournament this close to the Olympics, you're going to get a U.S. team where success is making it to the tournament they actually care about. And so they want... The U.S. like won. <laughs> it's like you know, getting past level one, like they beat the, the mini, the mini boss. Like if FIBA wants, um, you know, something different, they need to set up the challenge a little bit differently. I think FIBA's getting what it wants though. You know, I think that FIBA's interests and USA basketball interests are very different. FIBA's, uh, you know, big statement at their press conference at the end of the tournament was all about parity and the depth of talent. They pointed out only two of the teams, the, the quarterfinalists from that 2019 tournament were quarterfinalists again in this tournament. And it was United States and Serbia. Those are like two of the most consistent basketball programs ever. So I think they kind of like this, uh, this dynamic where everybody has a chance. I think they love to see the United States lose. I mean, you know, they're not going to be cheering up in the FIBA boxes, but if it's getting spread around and Germany's getting a turn, Serbia's getting turned, Lithuania's getting a turn, that's good for global basketball. It's kind of, you know, bringing in new viewers for them, new potential fan bases. And I think they love the sight of like the Latvian diehards traveling all across (laughs) Asia to follow Davis Bertans on his chase for the, the knockout round, right? Like, I think that's really what they're interested in. They don't care so much about why it's an annoyance to us or why it's not a 
inconvenient for us as American viewers. And um, that has been a persistent source of tension for a while now. And uh, I'm not sure how you get around it. I mean, sometimes you just have to play by the rules that you're given if you're USA basketball. And uh, that's why I'm more focused on domestic solutions, right? Like I'm even thinking, should we have a national basketball academy where we're bringing all these 12 year old kids to one place and train them up the right way? USA basketball tries to do some of that stuff with its youth teams and youth teams are actually very, very successful. But uh, should we be thinking for outside the box solutions so that we can get uh, you know greater commitment by the time these guys have become fabulously wealthy and, and have them view this as a higher priority than going to party with Michael Rubin in the Hamptons or whatever else these guys get to do on their summers that we don't get to do. We just get to watch on Instagram, right? Kevin Durant seemed to be enjoying the U.S. Open on Saturday and then the NFL's first game in Washington on Sunday. Um, so the motivation for the top players just is not going to be there. And I think that's fine. I don't think anyone in international basketball has shed a tear since the U.S. lost to Greece and Argentina at the Olympics in 2004. This has been good for the game everywhere. And it sets up for a fantastic Olympic tournament next year with every star that is on a team that's qualified. Greece still needs to qualify. Don't let us down, Giannis. Ben Galra, The Washington Post. Thanks again for joining us. And we'll be looking for your campaign for the FIBA World Cup to the American public online and elsewhere. Thanks again, man. Thanks for having me, guys. I'll be screaming into the void. Don't worry. Next, After Balls. And now it is time for Afterballs, sponsored by Bennett's Prune Juice, endorsed by Kenny Sailors, who says, it was okay. Let me interrupt here quickly. Okay, go for it. I was Googling Afterballs just because I wanted to look up something that I had done in the past, you know, just to revel, maybe, uh, or for research. And I put in Afterballs in the Google box, and the autocomplete, when you type in Afterballs, was Bennett's Prune Juice. My work is done here. Wow. <laughs> wow. Man. Continue. Continue. Congratulations. Josh. Yeah. I mean, you should re be really proud here, Josh. <laughs> I'd like to thank God. <laughs> Speaking of God, uh, if you're a regular hang up and listen listener, you probably know that Deion Sanders is not the first HBCU head football coach to make the leap to the FBS or the classification formerly known as NCAA Division I football. In fact, I'm sure I've brought this up a time of 40 in previous episodes. There have been only two others. The most recent was Jay Hobson, who left Alcorn State for Southern Mississippi in 2016. Hobson is anomalous in another important way. He's white. So you actually have to go all the way back to 1979 to find the last time a black head coach of an HBCU football program got called up to the big leagues. That man's name is Willie Jeffries, who left his alma mater, South Carolina State, for Wichita State. That made Jeffries the first black head coach of a D1 football program. He took over at Wichita State after only six years as a head coach, all of them at South Carolina State. There, Jeffries won 75% of his games, share or outright won a conference title in his final five years, and his teams were twice named the Black College National Champion. But Wichita State was then already in a spiral, churning through seven coaches in the previous 15 seasons and compiling a record of... 42, 112, and 2. 
There were also concerns that Jeffries wouldn't be able to recruit white players to Wichita State. Jeffries said he wasn't worried. And he did face some challenges there, though he publicly denied it at the time. Members of the Wichita State Athletic Department said Jeffries was called Jeff instead of Willie because it, quote, sounded less black, according to the Wichita Eagle. The president of the Booster Club said Jeffries took abuse from the local black community because, quote, he had so many white friends. But anyway, by year four, Jeffries had led the Shockers to an 8-3 and three record, their best mark in 20 years. And for a moment, it seemed as if the program was on the rise. But soon, the storm clouds appeared over Kansas. That winter, Wichita State was slapped with NCAA sanctions for recruiting violations, which kept the Shockers off TV and out of a bowl game and stripped them of 10 scholarships. The next fall, Wichita State dropped to 3-8. and eight. Jeffries seemingly was given another chance to turn things around. He fired six assistants at the end of the season in 1983 and remade the coaching staff and roster. But two months later, in January 1984, Jeffries surprisingly resigned to take the head coaching job at another HBCU, Howard University. That was, in a way, a step down. Howard competed in Division I AA, the division he'd already left behind. At least 20 of his black players, including quarterback Tyrone Mitchell, implied that Jeffries had been forced out by the athletic director, whose name may be familiar to some of you, Lou Perkins, the longtime Kansas athletic director throughout the 80s and 90s. Coach Jay wouldn't leave Wichita for all the money in the world. There's more money to this, Tyrone Mitchell said. Jeffries denied that and said he hadn't been forced out. But that was that. Jeffries went on to serve as a head coach for the next 18 seasons, five at Howard, and the remaining 13 back at his alma mater, South Carolina State. He finished his coaching career with a record of 180, 132, and 6, and has since been inducted into the Mid-Eastern Athletic Conference Hall of Fame, the South Carolina State Athletic Hall of Fame, and, in 2010, the College Football Hall of Fame. Today, he's 86 and living in his home state of South Carolina, and it took another 43 years for a black coach to follow in historic footsteps, Deion Sanders. And I think we all know that they're probably not the only two black HBCU coaches who could have made it work, whether it was Rod Bodroy or Billy Joe or Brian Jenkins. Hopefully it won't take another 43 years for someone to succeed Dion, but I'm dubious. And it's obviously worth noting that Jeffries lasted in football a lot longer than Wichita State. Three seasons after Jeffries left for Howard in December 1986, Wichita State announced that it was shutting down the program because of the financial burden on the school. At the time, a consultant told the school it would take $3.6 million to save the program. They couldn't pony up. It's probably for the best, lest Wichita State eventually ended up as the 19th team in the ACC or something like that. So, Stefan, what's your Willie Jeffries? In our segment on the U.S. Open, Joel, you mentioned that Coco Goff, during the awards ceremony, thanked Billie Jean King for her role in attaining equal pay for men and women at the tournament 50 years ago. After an executive from J.P. Morgan handed her a check for $3 million, Goff bent around her to address King directly. Thank you, Billie, for fighting for this. <laughs> Billie Jean King does deserve all the credit for equal pay and more in tennis and beyond. It was a fortnight of honor for her. The U.S. Open held a gala before the tournament and an on-court ceremony honoring King and commemorating the anniversary. Billboards and T-shirts bearing a cartoon logo of King were all over the event. Some of our friends in the media thought the U.S. Tennis Association, which runs the Open, might have been taking too much credit for equal pay. In her newsletter, Power Plays, Lindsay Gibbs said it was 
was King who secured the money in 1973 that leveled the checks. And she wrote, the men in charge didn't turn it down. What heroes? New York Times reporter David Waldstein tweeted that it was a sponsor that came up with the cash, not the U.S. Open. Fair takes, both, but a little reductive. For starters, prize money at tennis tournaments and other sports comes from sponsors, TV rights, tickets, concessions, etc. And it's not fair entirely to diss the Open and its admittedly historically sexist male leadership in the 1970s. In 1972, King and her fellow players on the recently formed women's tour voted to boycott that year's U.S. Open because the women's winner was slated to receive $10,000 versus $25,000 for the men's winner. But King wrote in her 2021 autobiography, All In, she was talked out of a boycott by Gladys Heldman, the founder of World Tennis Magazine, who had represented the nine women who had formed the breakaway tour. Heldman, King wrote, told her we should give the U.S. Open tournament director, Billy Talbert, more time to raise some extra cash. Whether Talbert tried to do that is unclear. King wrote that Talbert was a terrific guy, but unconvinced women should earn as much as men, which was, of course, a standard belief at the time among men and plenty of women, including women who covered tennis. King said she met with Talbert one-on-one at the Forest Hills Tennis Club in Queens shortly before the 72 Open. King told him that she and other women would, as Heldman advised her, play that year, but would boycott in 73 if the prize money wasn't equalized. King then reminded Talbert about an informal survey conducted by two women players at the 1970 Open. Literally, they went around with a questionnaire and handing it to fans. These were players in the tournament. And the results of the questionnaire showed that fans were interested in women's tennis on its own. And then King dropped the hammer. She said she had lined up a new sponsor, Band Deodorant, owned by Bristol Myers, which would contribute $55,000 to even out the purses. Billy couldn't believe that I brought money to the table, not just rhetoric, King wrote. I had concrete proof that we added value. And how did King get to Bristol Myers? According to a story on the U.S. Open's website by veteran tennis writer Joel Drucker, Gladys Heldman in the 1960s had built a strong relationship with the CEO of Philip Morris, Joe Cullman. Philip Morris owned Virginia Slims, the cigarette brand marketed to women that sponsored the Renegade Women's Tour. Heldman and Cullman socialized at the Century Country Club outside of New York City. Another member of the club, Drucker reported, was Dick Gelb, the CEO of Bristol-Myers. Drucker's story doesn't directly connect the dots between Heldman, Gelb, and the 55,000, but it seems reasonable to conclude that Heldman brought in King to close the deal with Bristol-Myers. The money from Ban Deodorant was called a grant, and it was dubbed the Ban Equalizer. The parties kept word of the sponsorship under wraps for almost a year. Then, in July 1973, the ban equalizer was announced at a news conference at the 21 Club in Manhattan. A Bristol-Myers executive said the company believed that, quote, the women's game is equally as exciting and entertaining as the men's, and we hope that our direct involvement with the 1973 U.S. Open clearly indicates our positive position on behalf of women in sports. And Billy Talbert wasn't at all grudging about the decision. As she wrote in her book, King really did change his mind, and she credited him for ultimately supporting equal pay. 
At the band news conference, Talbert was asked whether there might be opposition among male players. According to a story the next day in the New York Times, he replied, I don't know if there is. I'll just tell the men to go out and sell their product better. Despite those progressive answers, coverage of the ban equalizer was overwhelmingly sexist. Gal pros reach pay parity, the New York Daily News said. An Associated Press story attributed the deal to King's belligerence and Chris Everett's schoolgirl charm. Everett was described in stories as the little ice maiden, King as the bouncy outspoken matron, and top player Rosie Casals as the bouncy little San Franciscan. Bobby Riggs, whom King would defeat in the Battle of the Sexes a couple of months later, issued a statement saying, I am leaving immediately for Denmark for an operation, you know, so he could compete in the women's tournament. Sometimes I can't believe I was alive then. Bouncy. I mean, what? Yeah. I mean, it's easy for us to look back on that rhetoric from 50 years ago and and marvel at it. But I mean, I think there's been some erasure or forgetting of the fact that Novak Djokovic spoke out against equal pay as recently as 2016, maybe more recently than that. There's a clip that goes viral every now and again of Rafael Nadal saying in a press conference in response to a question about equal pay, well, women make more than men in modeling. Why don't we question that? Nick Kyrgios saying recently that Marketa Vondrasova actually made more money than Novak Djokovic or anyone when she, any male player, when she won Wimbledon because she had to play fewer sets because women play best two out of three instead of three out of five. And so I, I think in this and all other um, kind of fights for equality, I, I think we can get lulled into thinking that the fight was won and we're now celebrating the achievement. It needs to get rewon every Mm. generation, if not every year. And it's the same arguments, Josh. The same arguments that I saw in clips from 1973 are the ones that you just cited male players making now. They don't play five sets. They're not as strong. The game is different. It's not as taxing. Um, That's what was being argued 50 years ago by men and women. Um, And maybe that's the only difference now. It's only men doing the arguing. I mean, here's the thing. I mean, I'm sure that women out there doing it. And and surely anybody who's living in this political and cultural moment cannot believe that the fights of the past will remain in the past. Uh, (laughs) We've we've still got a long ways to go. We're not nearly as uh, evolved um, as we would have liked to have believed, even though maybe people don't believe it all anyway. And we've all given up on that artifice. But uh, yeah. Joel, closing with the Virginia Slim slogan. You've come a long way, baby. Is that what I did? Really, man. I saw somebody smoking a cigarette behind me in a car yesterday. It was two people smoking a cigarette. And I was like, God damn, I didn't know people were still doing that, bro. <laughs> anyway. We've come a long way on this show. And now we are done. Our producer is Kevin Bendis. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. And you can email us at hangup at slate.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the show and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. For Joel Anderson and Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zalmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. <laughs>